Thank you all. I cannot tell you how good it feels to be out of isolation. Somebody asked me if I went for a run at midnight. I wasn't that glad to be out of isolation. And who knows that uh, Easter means different things to different people. And the comment that struck me this Easter was from a guest on a uh, News Delivered Differently info-style program on television who stated that the enormous appeal that the Easter weekend had for him was that it was a time he could do what he liked because unlike Christmas, there was no defined tradition for Easter. There was a stunned silence in the studio and in the background you could hear one of the hosts mutter, I think there's a few million Christians who might contest that observation. But on thinking about his comment, I realised there's actually a fundamental and very important difference between Christmas and the Easter celebration, which is apparent only to those who are paying attention, which is hopefully the followers of Jesus. Interestingly, it has much potential for impact on those not paying attention, worldly TV presenters for one. See, Christmas, and I don't know whether you've thought of it this way, but Christmas is a celebration of potential. It's a safe celebration, because no matter what you believe, you are celebrating the birth of a baby, and you know that you've got about 30 years before you have to deal with the world-changing actions of that child. So you're safe. Easter, however, is a transactional celebration. This is where the rubber meets the road. There's no future potential being celebrated here. This is the point of impact where the Son of Man takes on the world. And where better can, to conduct that transaction than at the table. Throughout history, where, when people meet to discuss almost anything, they sit down at the negotiating table, the diplomatic table, the boardroom table. If you're into King Arthur, the round table. The parliamentary table, the planning table, the discussion table. At the end of wars, the surrender table. At the beginning of wars, the bridal table. <coughs> then there's the construction table, the dinner table, and of course, the communion table. The Bible is full of references to the fruitfulness of transactions between people as a community and between God and his people at a food-bearing table. In Psalm 23, David remarks on God's ability to commune with us no matter what problems threaten to engulf our world. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not a good place to be, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. That's a great picture of God's provision, of God's peace in the face of terrible circumstances. In the book of Acts, the, the first actions of the newly birthed church are to meet together and to share meals with one another. Acts 2.42 says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Excuse me and to prayer. I haven't talked for two weeks. I'd forgotten how much of a strain it was. 
But no table in the Bible, or in fact in history, has had a greater impact than the table that Jesus and the disciples gathered around for the Last Supper. And in fact, there's probably a table behind me that you can see that uh, has had greater impact than the actual story of Jesus. Because the table you see behind me is a medieval Renaissance interpretation of the Last Supper by some guy you may not know called Leonardo da Vinci. Anybody ever heard of Leonardo? Not just the green guy with the swords. Um, This was before the uh, Mutant Ninja Turtles came on the scene. And the interesting thing is that this representation of the Passover meal taken by Jesus and his disciples has actually come to overshadow the actual event in a couple of ways. For a start, it gave rise to the idea that Jesus was a white Anglo-Saxon male and not Jewish at all. And secondly, through a, a guy called Dan Brown, who wrote a few books, it's led to the belief that the Last Supper was actually part of some conspiracy involving a baby with Mary Magdalene. And surprising how many people in the world take this picture as the the gospel truth, if you like, of how the uh, Last Supper played out. And the third thing is that it gave birth to this idea that first century Middle Eastern tables would look anything like this depiction by Leonardo. It may surprise you that popular social conventions and assumptions have derailed the truth long before Facebook, Twitter and Snapchat. This second painting here, which you may or may not recognise, by a guy called Sando Botticelli, is actually a picture of hell. And it shows the seven levels of hell. And this has led to the commonly held idea, strangely enough, that hell is actually a pit with different levels of suffering ruled by a devil called Beelzebub. And if you read your Bible, you won't find references to any of these things uh, in your Bible. So I think this is where we've got to recognize that social constructs have misled more people about the Christian faith than we can imagine. Good, we've got hell out of there. Which is why it's important to actually understand the, the relevance of this idea of the table as a bridge between us and God. I think when it comes to interacting with God, and this might be just me, but we tend to be fearful for a couple of reasons. I don't know about you, but the questions that come to my mind when it comes to approaching God's table are one, am I really invited? You ever, been, ever done that thing where you've knocked on the door of a dinner party and you've turned and you said, there's no other cars, is it the right night? Are we in the right place? Uh, very rarely have discovered that we're not, but there's that uncertainty. And the other thing, when it comes to approaching God's table, is we automatically think, what am I supposed to bring to the table? You don't turn up at a dinner party without sweets, bottle of wine, whatever it is you're supposed to bring. (coughs) Excuse me. And I think this is where the actions of Jesus at the Last Supper should give us hope. Even just the people he invited to the Last Supper. We've got the disciples, and I know that most of us having read our Bible, we think the disciples were a a privileged bunch, a, a group of Jesus' inner circle. And the fact that they were 
is actually more of a miracle in itself. Because if you think about it, as the story unfolds, we discover that two of them betray him in the next 12 hours. And the rest of them run away and hide over the next two days. Their actions reveal themselves to be fearful, fallible people. No better than you or me. Jesus' words also reinforce that there's nothing that they brought to the table to influence Jesus' desire to sacrifice his life for them and for the rest of humanity. We can see this in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26, verse 26. And this is the famous scripture that we know about communion. It says, as they were eating... I watched a great video the other day that somebody sent about what they would have eaten um, back then. It wasn't exactly what we'd have called a Sunday roast, except possibly for the lamb. But they had a lot of beans and a lot of fruity stuff, which looked interesting. But as they were eating, and bread, of course, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Now we can see from this passage in Matthew's Gospel, that it's actually what Jesus brings to the table that's important. All we need to do is turn up. It also tells us that his gift of a covenant between God and humanity is available for anyone who is prepared to come to the table. And that's our our privilege, that's our option, that's our choice this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as we prepare for communion this morning, and a a little later on after this song, uh, Nathan will come back up and give instructions as how we take communion. But I want you in a moment when the worship team's ready to stand and to worship before we take communion with this song, which talks about the love of Jesus, the sacrifice he made and the table that we can come before to actually join with him. Because let me tell you, you have been invited and you don't have to bring anything but yourself. Let's all stand.